Well, welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons. Ooh, bit of feedback there. Um, and the final event support, our War Art and Surgery Exhibition. Um, I do hope that most of you have the chance to see it this evening, but if not, it is open until Saturday the 14th of February, so you still have a few days left to see it. Um, we're very pleased this evening to be joined by Andrew Graham Dixon, an art critic, journalist, TV presenter and author. Um, Andrew has a long-standing interest in the work of Henry Tonks that forms the centrepiece of our current exhibition. He first encountered the pastel drawings that you have seen this evening in 1992, and he's been revisiting them since for a variety of projects, including uh, the Culture Show and, most recently, as part of the British Art at War series that was on BBC Four um, in the programme on Bombert, Sickert and Nash. Um, Andrew appears on our TV screens regularly with series such as Art of China and the Art of Gothic. He writes a weekly column for the Sunday Telegraph um, and will soon be making us all long for a nice holiday with another series of Italy Unpacked with the chef Giorgio Locatelli, which starts next Friday on BBC Two. I've got my video set already. Um, he's also about to go into production with another series of Art Of, and this time it's going to be Scandinavia. But this evening, Andrew's going to talk on Henry Tonks and war art and surgery. Thank you. Thanks. Are we, are we able to get the lights um, turned down a bit? It's a bit glaring. That's much better. Now you can see him. I'm sorry, I don't like having to refer to notes, but this is the first time, or probably the only time, uh, I will give this lecture, so I've had to write things down so that... You know, I can get my facts straight. So apologies for a bit of sort of paper reliance. So this is Henry Tonks, um, who had a, a, a sort of unusual life. He was born in 1862. Um, so he's a contemporary of, among others, Karl Marx and William Morris. Uh, and when he was younger, he was divided between whether to be an architect or a doctor, and he decided to become a doctor. Uh, he studied at the Royal Sussex County Hospital, just around the corner from me, in Brighton, and then at the London Hospital, and in 1886, he was appointed house surgeon under Frederick Treves, and in the same year, Frederick Treves's most celebrated patient, the Elephant Man, took up residence in the hospital where he died uh, just four years later. In 1888, Tonks passed his medical exams and became a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons. But in the same year, he sort of did a bit of a banana twist in his career because he enrolled uh, in evening classes at the Westminster School of Art and decided that art, not surgery, was the name of his game and changed his career. Uh, and he eventually got a job at the Slade School of Art, where he taught drawing and anatomy. And Tonks, basically, I think, in most histories of British art, or sort of most accounts of British art, he's very much a character to the side of the stage. He's a bit part. He's a Rosencrantz. He's a Guildenstern. He, he crops up, just occasionally expressing outrage at 
Roger Fry's exhibition of Manet and the Post-Impressionists. It's too much, it's too much, this Cubism, this Picasso, it's all too much. He hates modernity and he hates modern art. He rails at Bomberg and is instrumental in having Bomberg thrown out. Uh, he terrorizes Paul Nash, who attributes his decision to, to actually leave the Slade and pursue his studies in front of nature to Henry Tonks, bullying him for not being good enough at painting the figure. But that's all we really, that's, that's the kind of picture of Tonks that we get. He's a sort of quite slightly comical, slightly intimidating, slightly bullying upholder of traditional values. Um, but tonight, I think we're going to see, I hope we're going to see uh, that he was rather more interesting uh, and more complicated a figure than, than his caricature might suggest. As, oh, where's my clicker? Sorry. I've included this just to give you some sense of, of what Tonks's work was like. Um, family scenes, sunlit interiors, landscapes, ladies' portraits, um, slightly airless depictions, even when they're outdoors paintings, of um, an England or perhaps a world that is not going to be allowed to change. Certain values are going to persist. He had a very cynical view of the mechanical, industrial, technological uh, advances of the 19th century. And near the end of his life, um, towards the middle years of the 20th century, he, he, he told a friend to read Gina Lombroso's The Tragedies of Progress. Uh, and he added a note saying, it is a remarkable explanation of views I have had ever since I read Ruskin nearly 50 years ago. Now, which Ruskin? Probably Ruskin on the nature of Gothic. Probably Ruskin reprinted by William Morris in William Morris's Marxist phase, which was uh, the Ruskin who railed at the confinement of men to a single task in a factory repeated 20,000 times a day, this dehumanizing effect of progress, um, of modernity, of technology. Um, that's what uh, Tonks, if one's looking at him as a painter, you know, in terms of his ideology, that's what he stands against all that by repeating something that comes from before. So somebody said he's the best 18th century artist Britain produced in the 19th century. So in a sense, I think that's what Tonks is about. Um, when he exhibits at the Royal Academy, when he shows his work to the public. But as I say, there's another side of him that emerges. He's a man, uh, I would suggest, who doesn't want to confront the modern, doesn't want to embrace the modern, doesn't like the idea of the modern, recognizes the modern, but rather like Morris, turns his face away from it. It's a very English approach. It's a way of addressing the modernity and its problems that results in places like Hampstead Garden Suburb rather than the Bauhaus. You can take the modern and work with the modern and make it good modern, powerful modern, positive modern, or you can just turn away from it. And I think that's where Tonks comes from, except that he was a man who couldn't avoid the modern. Um, when he was 52 years old, 1914, as we all know, um, the First World War broke out 
He was an assistant professor at the Slade at the time, having risen up the ranks. But by January 1915, uh, he was working in a British Red Cross hospital for the French in Haute-Marne, and he was later posted to a clearing station nearby. Uh, in other words, because of his uh, medical training, he was called to the front even though he was in his 50s because he could be potentially of help in healing the wounded. He wrote, this is a, <clears throat> just to give some kind of sense of the world in which he found himself, was rather far from that drawing room with those nice young girls that he painted. Um, that's a depiction of the front as Paul Nash experienced it when he was called up. Uh, at the same time, Tonks wrote to a friend saying, the wounds are horrible, and I for one will be against wars in the future. You have no right to ask men to endure such suffering. It would not matter if the wounds did well, but they are practically all septic. And in another letter written not long afterwards, uh, he's returned to London and he says, I have decided that I am not any use as a doctor. Now, you'll notice that in, in that first letter, that first extract, he emphasizes the nature of the wounds. He, he uses the word wounds three times. The wounds are horrible. Um, and in a sense, I think what he's understanding or immediately realizing, as a lot of men did immediately realize, more quickly than the officers, sadly, what happened in World War I was that you still have the persistence of an old, almost quasi-chivalric notion of battle combined with uh, machines that just make a mockery of it. So you can be as brave as you like, and what's the point? You just be cut to ribbons, and that's what's happening. And it's the cutting to ribbons that makes Tonks feel he cannot deal with it. Nothing in his training all those years ago has prepared him for what he's experienced here. So move forward to January 1916, Tonks receives a temporary commission as a lieutenant in the Royal Army Medical Corps. And one of his jobs um, at the Cambridge Military Hospital in Aldershot is assessing, it's not a very nice job to have to do, assessing whether patients are fit to return to active duty. But while he was there, he met or it's not entirely clear, but it, it, it may be that he was sort of sought out by uh, a, an extraordinary pioneering plastic surgeon called Harold Delph Gillies, who was born 20 years after Tonks in 1882. And he was a New Zealander. He was 20 years younger than Tonks. Um, Gillies had convinced the authorities it's remarkable that they needed convincing, but they did, of the urgent need for specialist centers to treat men with severe facial injuries. And he was the head surgeon at Aldershot responsible for treating men with facial injuries. And in this work, this pioneering work of plastic surgery, Gillies felt, because everything he was doing was to a degree experimental and they were learning for, with each operation, he felt it was very important to make a record. And so he, he knew that Tonks was an extremely gifted, academically trained artist and 
he'd heard of Tonks, sought him out and said, will you, will you be my partner in this enterprise? And Tonks agreed. And that is really the history uh, behind these remarkable pastels which um, survive. This is gunner John Dyson, who was serving in the Royal Field Artillery when he was injured in September 1917. This is uh, the image in which Tonks records the injury before treatment. This is Private William Riley. Um, and you can see what um, Tonks meant when he talked about, you know, the shocking nature of, of these wounds. We don't know who this young man is, was. April 1916, Tonks writes another letter. I am doing a number of pastel heads of wounded soldiers who had had their faces knocked about. A very good surgeon called Gillies, who's also nearly a champion golf player, is undertaking what is known as the plastic surgery necessary. It is a chamber of horrors, but I am quite content to draw them, as it is excellent practice. I think there's a bit of reading between the lines um, that needs to be done. And uh, I think when you look at a picture like this, you can, uh, particularly when you look at it upstairs, you can see the extent to which Gillies is uh, exceeding his brief. He's by no means uh, creating all Sorry, that Tonks is exceeding his brief. Tonks is by no means um, creating an image that simply shows Gillies what he needs to know in terms of the facial injury and the soldier's recovery from the facial injury. If he were to do that, he might simply, you might sort of draw a circle two-thirds of the way down that image and extract that detail of the horribly wounded mouth, and that might possibly be enough, but Tonks doesn't just give us that. Um, he gives us, I think, apart from, among other things, and, and, and despite his sort of bluff little remarks about men having their faces knocked about and Gillies being very good at golf, and I think that's all very, very English. That's like talking about the weather. You know, let's not really talk about what we're going to talk about. But I think the pictures really do talk about what Tonks felt. And I think what you see when you look at a picture like that is almost... I think you see Tonks's immense humanity as a man. I mean, his complete ability to see these people as people, not as elephant men, not as exhibits, not as horrors, not as chamber of horrors, actually. He sees them as men who are somehow trapped now behind this mask that the injury has made for them. Um, and you've, you, I think you can sense in that image of, of that person staring, that young man staring sort of resolutely into space. You can sense um, shock, you know, literally shell shock, but also uh, deeper life shock and, and this sense of 
somehow being trapped, that this is it, I'm stuck with this now. Um, so they're, they're, they're utterly remarkable, remarkable images. And they're so beautiful, which is um, also, I think, what makes them so disturbing. Absolutely beautiful, the way that, uh, you know, they've got so many things that one could talk about as an art connoisseur, but it seems just so totally inappropriate somehow, given the subject. You know, the delicacy with which the hair has been pastelled into being, the, the sense of the hair possibly just slightly waving in whatever light movement of air there might be in that room. Uh, the, the sort of the, the sort of sense of space behind that ear and around that ear, the modelling of the jacket, <coughs> the modulation of colour. I mean, even the way in which the, you know, the, the terribly extruded tongue has been given uh, a sort of sculptural presence. You could you could feel it. You could touch it. And I, th and I think, you know, when you read Gilly's accounts of the surgery, touching these wounds and feeling around the face and the soldier allowing you to do that, that was a very, very important part of it. I mean, there's a totally very different kind of um, personal aside. I mean, my daughter had her face very, very horribly bitten by a dog when she was about six, and they thought that he'd actually bitten off her lip. And it was only with the plastic surgeon feeling inside for maybe half an hour and literally pulling bits out that they found that in fact she did have her lip and they sewed it back and they recreated it. So that, um, I'm sort of familiar with that, but reading Gilly's notes reminded me that that's what, you know, plastic surgeon is actually, in, the, in a case like this, is sort of having to reach into this face to find out. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of tolerance on the part of this wounded soldier and there's a lot is being asked of them. And I think that comes through in these pictures as well, is uh, the sense that having been wounded, um, you know, having suffered, pro-patria and all that, they're now having to go through another whole series of ordeals. Some of these men had to have as many as 10 different operations, and they were there for two years, three years, having operation after operation. Um, and I think you have that sense uh, in the artist of, of he's almost with his pastel, he's touching the wound, or allowing Gillies, perhaps, to remember touching the wound. So he's collaborating with Gillies, but he's also collaborating with the soldier. And the soldier is collaborating with him, because how difficult must that be for a young man who's had that done to him to stay sitting there for an artist you know, it's bad enough having your portrait painted if you're just a sitter. You know, the Queen finds it very tedious, we're told. But Im imagine, imagine, imagine doing it in that situation. This is Private Wilson. Um, and I think the, back, the, the, the background to all this um, is very interesting. Uh, I, I should say that Susanna Birnoff's written some very interesting articles about the subject of the Tonks-Gillies uh, collaboration, and I'm, I'm drawing on quite a bit of her information in, in this and some of her statistics that she quotes. But one of the things that I thought was very interesting is that she looked at um, how the newspapers covered 
uh, you know, men who'd been injured at the time. And it wasn't uncommon to find photographs of men who'd, say, lost an arm or lost a leg. Um, like my grandfather. My grandfather, my mother's father, lost an arm and a leg. Uh, so he had one arm and one leg. But th that was somehow... That wasn't regarded as being so bad, in a sense, or it was a more acceptable form of injury. Um, and you'd find photographs in papers like the Daily Mail of a man sort of brandishing his new artificial arm. And this is a miracle of science and our boys are being helped. But you very rarely, if ever, find any photographs or articles really in the press for public consumption about these kinds of facial injuries. I think that's partly because the facial injuries are, you know, uh, <laughs> it's almost like it well, Karl Marx would say that capitalism doesn't want anybody to see what goes on inside the factory. Well, the mechanized war machine doesn't want anybody really to see what's happening to the war fodder. And, 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 when, and, and this is the problem, what they're trying, they're try, you can't really very easily preserve the concept of a heroic war if people really know that what this war is, is bloke sticks his head up and immediately a huge, terrible injury occurs to his face. You know, that, that's, we don't want people to know that. So there may be an element of that, there may be an element of the fact that the facial disfigurement is a taboo. It's considered to be too horrible. Um, but the fact remains that facially disfigured veterans were, were not really part of the public perception of the war. And yet the statistics, um, because of... You see, they've got... Their, their, their military equipment means that they've got a helmet, but it's not a helmet, and they don't really have body armour because they haven't really got used to what's happening. So the people designing the, what you wear are not as advanced as the people designing what pierces you. And that's one of the problems. So you, you, they, their faces aren't protected. So you get lots and lots and lots of these dreadful facial injuries. And you get facial injuries of a kind that are much more complex and much more ragged and bloody and raw because they're caused by shrapnel, which is not a neat thing like a bullet. I mean, not that a bullet's that neat, but a bullet's neater. Um, that's more like a gunshot wound, actually. But some of the other injuries that you'll see, the shrapnel wounds, are really like they're ragged because people's faces are being basically exploded by irregular pieces of stuff hitting them very hard. And the statistics of war injury reflect that. 60,500 60, men suffered really horrible head or eye injuries compared with 41,000 men who had one or more limbs amputated. So facial injuries were really massive and yet not very much seen. And that's another one, that's another reason why I think these images are so, although they're not nice to look at, they're important to look at because I think they, 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 they give us a reality of the war that we don't really find anywhere else. Mirrors were not allowed on the ward. Um, and, and so extensive were facial injuries, you know, which is why, in a sense, it's shocking that Gillies even had to argue that there should be a specialist ward for men with facial injuries. But even once he had his ward, they were hardly, you know, they were hardly well equipped. Although everybody knew this was happening, they still weren't sufficiently well equipped. And 
although everybody knew what inevitably must happen, they still weren't well enough equipped. So that, for example, after the Somme offensive, which began in July the 1st, 1916, they were allowed an extra 200 beds at Aldershot for men with facial injuries. <coughs> very, very quickly, 2,000 men with facial injuries arrived. So the hospital itself is a kind of war zone. Gillies mentions this in a, in a sort of acerbic aside. Men without half their faces, men burned and maimed to the condition of animals. Um, this is Private William McNee. I, I give them their names if I know them. I don't always know them. This is Private George Stone. Um, we don't know much about him. He was Canadian, he, lip injury. Um, after two years of continual sort of revisiting of the problem um, and, 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 and some failed operations, he finally said, that's it, I don't want any more surgery. Um, and this is Private Walter Ashworth. Um, he was actually injured in 1917, so he's not part of the Somme. But he was a tailor. Um, and I'm not quite sure how the archives know these things, but, but, but so you'll have to ask around. But we do know a little bit about this chap, perhaps from the family, perhaps from him. Um, but you see, he was injured in 1917, and he was a tailor, and when he went back to work, he, he was a success. Quite a few of these chaps don't survive the operations, they don't live, but he was a success. And um, when he went back to work as a tailor, his boss said, can't have you front of house, because you, know, you look too grotesque. And to make matters worse, to rub salt into the deep wound, um, his fiancée, decided that actually, after all, she wouldn't marry him. But there's a sort of, there may be a sort of happy ending where it's, where it's, where it's like reading a telegram. Oh, that wasn't me. What was that? Was I? Yeah. How do you know? Is that Walter Ashworth? No, that's not. Oh, sorry, I'm so sorry. So sorry, yeah. The, there you go, see, sorry, this is, this is Walter Ashworth. That's right, yes, he's the, the tailor. Um, Yes, sorry. So, uh, yeah, and he, he uh, it turns out that his fiancée, having left him, her best friend married him. And um, he emigrated to Australia, subsequently returning, um, and, and, and seems to have had his own place as a tailor in Blackpool in the 1950s. So good for Private Walter Ashworth. But again, I think... Um, You know, pe pe people hadn't really be people weren't prepared for it because the because the press wasn't really talking about it. You know, I think th there's a, there's a level of shock, you know, that we feel. But but you know, imagine your betrothed suddenly coming back with with this, and you're not prepared because you haven't you don't really know that these sorts of injuries are common. Um, only the men at the front know, but. So it's, it, it's, um, 
There are predicaments behind predicaments. Uh, I think. Sorry, I'm just, yes. This is Private Robert Davidson. Um, now, he's quite a good example. I mean, it's, again, I, th I think there's thinking about Tonks. Tonks chose pastel um, for these images, which is which has associations above all, really, with the delicacy of 18th century French portraiture. That was, that was where pastel came into its own. If you go to the Wallace collection, all those wonderful, um, beautiful depictions of, you know, the golden children of the Ancien Regime in pastel. And, and it was admired massively in France precisely because of its... Uh, it's almost the the, as it were, sketching or drawing rather than painting medium, um, which comes closest to oil paint in its subtlety and in its ability to capture um, effects like the, like the, the down on a peach or, or um, the slight fuzzing. You, know, you could really distinguish between someone who's shaved a bit or not shaved at all. It's, it's a very, very subtle medium. And yet for archive purposes, um, as I, I think will be confirmed by those who look after these images, it's not ideal because it's, it's extremely um, liable to flake off. So it suggests to me that, again, you know, the, sheer, the, the, the mere choice of this technique, which is... I mean, you can see why he would have chosen it for Gilly's purposes, precisely because it is so good at, at capturing um, these sort of amorphous, difficult injuries. They're almost, uh, you know, I mean, old historians of art, the old theorists of art used, used to distinguish between um, Titian and Michelangelo. You know, Michelangelo's line and Titian is colour. And in a sense, these injuries are designed for Titian to paint, not for Michelangelo to draw, because they are injuries that express themselves through colour and variation and tone and a merging of... Um, one form to another in an almost indeterminate way. They're about bodies that are less drawn than they were before they were blown up. Um, so in a sense, I think Tonks is being very, very subtle. He's choosing the medium that's most beautifully adapted to um, these injuries. And one of the things that a plastic surgeon is looking at when he's looking at an injury, he's looking at, you know, where is the saliva coming out of? Um, you know, things like that, sort of very rather messy truths, which Pastel is very good at conveying. Um, but I can't help also wondering if Tonks, if Tonks didn't uh, choose Pastel because as he was creating the images, he, he, he just realised that, that he's almost playing on, on the fact that these are sabotaged portraits, you know, that they look like portraits except they're not. Um, that, that he's almost aware of what he's doing, that, that, that he's creating some strange new kind of art. And remember that what's being done to these men is itself a, a form of art, a form of reconstruction. Um, as we can see, that's the same man. Sometimes we get the before and the after. So this is also um, Private Robert Davidson. Uh, I think, I think Gillies said it was never entirely successful, 
Um, but he had five operations. He had pneumonia, he had pleurisy, and he got through to that at the end. And again, one of the things, one of the places where, where the choice of pastel strikes me as being somehow superfluous to purpose, over and above surgically necessary, above all is in the eyes, the expression of these eyes, that Tonks's use of pastel really enables him because pastel can give you these different looks that are very, very hard to achieve, say, in pencil. Much harder, but in, with pastel, you can, you can use this range of colors. You can suggest depths there. And um, I don't know about you, but when I'm in a room with a lot of them, um, I feel... Yeah, it's very hard to, to put my finger on it, but it's, it's as if you feel that they are still now witnesses to history for us. And they're looking at us and telling us with their eyes that this was really, really bad and that we should pay attention to this. And, and I don't think if he'd used, if, you know, if he'd used any other medium, Tonks would have been able to achieve that. I don't even know if he consciously achieved that. I might be projecting it, but I feel it very, very strongly when I'm in the presence of those images, that there's this look of outrage, of shock, of um, endurance, and actually also of, of a kind of deep burning rage, anger, that this should have happened and it should have happened to me and why did nobody tell me? I didn't sign up for that. And why didn't somebody stop it? <coughs> and it's happened to a lot of other people I know too. Because they're living, they're all in the same place. These thousands of men, hundreds of men. Yeah, one of Tonks's remarks about drawing, all works of art are a series of corrections. Um, in other words, the, it's, it's where Tonks almost comes close to the aesthetic of Cezanne, um, strangely enough. Uh, but in other words, that to look is always to correct or to adjust and that we're always testing our own perceptions when we, when we make a work of art. But in the case of these um, corrections, the faces are being corrected at the same time. And the scale of the pictures is very intimate. They're, they're about half, half life scale, but big enough. And they seem bigger when you're in the room with them. They seem like they might be human scale. And interestingly, not long before he died, Tonks said, again, which to me also suggests that he, he understood at some level of his being that they were not merely surgical aids, um, he, he, he said, these are the only drawings that I am not ashamed of. Um, they're very touching. And, and I think they, you, know, you can feel this, the phrase, the human clay really does come to mind. Um, yeah, and this sense of somebody being put back together, but they can't be completely put back together. 
Um, there's a sort of rawness of mind. And I think that's what's, I think that's what's brilliant about the, them as well, because to, to, what they show us is that a person isn't simply... And I think they're very good things for doctors to look at, actually, because they're, they're a reminder that a patient is not just a surgical problem to be overcome. They're a soul living inside a body that's got a problem. And Tonks gives us both of those things in these images, which is why I think they, they are, in their own way, um, really very great works of art, much greater than his rather caricatured status as the sort of enemy of modernism would give us to believe. Because after all, what is he confronting here? But, not well, the, almost literally the ghosts in the machine, that's what these faces are. They're the ghosts produced by this new mechanism. You know, you take the machinery and the, you know, the ingenuity of the Industrial Revolution and you apply it as happened in Germany through chemistry and in England through all sorts of other things to the business of making war and this is what you get. Um, but he's confronting it. Having spent his life as an artist turning away from it, here he is willingly, willingly confronting it, perhaps because in the sphere of Gillies's operation, Gillies's project, he feels it's safe to do so. He might not have felt safe, given his Ruskinism, to confront modernity full-on as a painter on the walls of the Royal Academy. This is Private Charles Deeks. <clears throat> Again, another example of, of why pastel, rather than line drawing, is so good as a record, as a, as a means of recording this type of injury. And, and I haven't got any photographs, but the there are photographs have taken that Gillies also used for photography. And it's interesting how uh, instantly recognisable Deeks is put next to the photograph. The, the very, very good likenesses in that photographic sense that Tonks achieved. And yet what Tonks gives you in terms of Deeks's f uh, flayed, ragged mouth is so much more sensitive, as Frank Auerbach would say, haptic, it's an image that you can feel that you could touch. It's, it's full of a sense of touch, it's full of a sense of flesh um, that simply doesn't come across in the photograph where everything is, is obscured in black and white, in, in, in layers of, of, of grey and black and white tones. Um, it's, it's suggested to a degree. There are aspects of the wound that, well, I think the, the photograph I'm thinking of was taken at a slightly earlier stage. Um, and I think what's... Um, yeah, I mean, he, 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 he was 25, this chap, Charles Deeks. Uh, in July 1916, at the Somme, an explosion obliterated much of his right cheek and his mouth. His steel helmet didn't protect his face from flying shell fragments and shrapnel. Um, and it's a good example of how, of how these sort of innovations in technology were, were producing larger, clumsier wounds than those produced in the past by gunshot. Um, and then we have, so it's interesting you see that, that sometimes, I mean, if you look at the hair there, <coughs> the hair is, disarrayed, it's almost like it's got that kind of electrical energy of 
It might almost be antennae that have been disarrayed by the shock of the injury. Um, his ears are slightly out of focus. So that's Deeks before the operation. And there's Deeks after the operation. And um, you see, with this image, I, I wonder if <coughs> Tonks isn't himself. I wonder if there isn't more that going on here than just the record. You know, that Deeks has given Tonks his time to make that other image of him when his mouth was half not there. And now that Deeks has been through his operations, which must have been grim, and I think, in fact, they were grim, the, uh, the wound at the side of his mouth persistently refused to heal. So they'd stitch it, it would fail to heal. They'd cut it out again and stitch it again, and it would fail to heal. And then they did it again. And the last time, it worked. So he's got that line there. But it was a brutal, difficult horrible procedure for him to undergo again and again and again. And at the end of it, I think Tonks here is saying, look, he's doing, I think he's creating this image for Deeks, not just for Gillies. And I think he's creating, this is, this is like the mirror that isn't allowed in the ward, but it is allowed now. And he's saying, here you are, you see. And Tonks has, you know, he's got a tie on and he's got his jacket in place and his hair's been combed. So that's what you looked like before. And now here you are, we've put you back together again. So I think some of these images, there's an element of morale boosting. And in this case, justified. <clears throat> Other injuries that were particularly uh, vile uh, were to do with um, uh, heavy artillery going off when it wasn't meant to, so you'd get shot by your own gun kind of thing, or cordite burns from being at the wrong end of, of, of heavy artillery that didn't go off the way it was meant to, or um, <clears throat> airplanes. Well, I mean, again, you get this in World War Two more, but, but petrol, <clears throat> petrol burn injuries because of the petrol engine. So all the new, wonderful new engines that get invented, they always have a concomitant in the terrible injuries they cause to people. So here we've got Gunnar Francis Greyer, who, um, <coughs> he's a Cordite uh, Burns victim. And, and from this image, <coughs> you might think, so again, this, this time he's got a tie on and he's got the, the blue coat, must have been a uniform, I suppose. Um, and I think in that case, it has a rather different effect. It's not, it's not tidied him up. It creates this, this, this sort of very um, extraordinary sense of uh, an anomaly. It's like the wound is, is, is an eruption of, of strangeness into an otherwise normal world. So by adhering to the conventions of a portrait and then suddenly presenting a face like this in the center of a portrait, that really rams home what this war does. You know, it's, it's, it's almost as if, you know, there's a, <clears throat> the house at the top where I live, 
There's a big manor house at the top, and they found a letter written there by Siegfried Sassoon. This is the house next to my house where I live in Sussex. It was built by one of the great lords of the day and um, <clears throat> looks out across the Sussex Downs. And there's, um, there's a letter from Siegfried Sassoon saying, I wish I could tell Lord so-and-so what the bloody hell's really going on because he'd soon stop enjoying this view and he'd soon stop enjoying this house if he really knew what was going on, but I can't talk about it. And I think, in a sense, that, that's what these images do. They, 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 into an otherwise placid Edwardian setting, a nice portrait, such as the kind that Tonks might have painted if the war had never happened, they put this face. So the convention is, is ruptured, just like if... I think in Tonks's mind, all the idyllic fantasies of what Edwardian England was supposedly about, you know, cricket on the village green and all that, the, the, you know, well, you must just forget about it, right? It's almost, it's almost, these pictures are collectively, it's like a game of cricket being played by these people. Well, what's that going to look like? So if you, keep, if you keep within the conventions, I think that can be... I think that's possibly... Sometimes that's what, that's what I get from these pictures. Um, there's a sort of deliberate playing with conventional portraiture. And again, the pastel makes that seem the more shocking. And um, it's another Burns victim. This is a boy who was, I think, shot down on his first flight and um, suffered petrol burns. And, um, well, not surprisingly, he, um, I think he had seven operations and skin grafts and just endless horrors, but he did not, he didn't survive. He died in 1918. Um, he's second Lieutenant Henry Lumley. Uh, Tonks... Um, was uncomfortable with the idea of these pictures being placed on public display. Um, he said they are rather dreadful subjects for public view. So although I think... See, I, so, so I, I, don't, I wouldn't take back what I said before about him using the conventions of Edwardian portraiture and having these wounded faces erupt into them as being some kind of angry statement or some kind of <coughs> popping of the bubble of people's ideas. But I don't think that was done at the level of... That wasn't done at such a level that he would do that for public exhibition. Because he, I think he knew that he couldn't exhibit these pictures publicly. I don't think that was part of the compact. Um... I mean, these men had suffered enough. They'd given him their time. They'd given him their trust. They'd given him their images. You know, he wouldn't put them on public display as specimens or as freaks or anything like that. He couldn't do that. So he knew that he couldn't do it. I just wonder if some of the things that we're now getting from the images, he did put there, perhaps somewhere in his being, knowing that at some point the situation would be sufficiently cold, the men would be sufficiently dead, sufficiently in the past, that it would no longer be a breach of trust and that their faces could again come up as they do now, I think, for us, to 
you know, to play an important part in our awareness of our own history uh, and our awareness of what's been done in our names, maybe, well, not our names, but in the names of our country. Um, I think that's that's. I, I just put that there really because I, I think he, we don't know who he is. He's one of one of the not very many where we don't have a name. Um, but it's a really beautiful portrait, and it's. I don't know. It's something. You know, he's almost like a. He's a character from P.G. Woodhouse, except. He's been so damaged. And again, the red tie and the blue coat and the eyes, which are just so haunting. And they're not really looking. The eyes, it's, it's almost as if they're still seeing whatever it was that's, that, that, that they saw when they were, when they were wounded. He, he paints the expression of, of being um, haunted. Is this Gunner F.W. Chumley? Does anybody know? Or have I got that wrong? <coughs> no, is he unknown? Is that, I think that's Gunner Chumley. Yeah. Tonks's pictures are um, very uneasily poised between categories, I think. They're, they're medical illustrations, but they're also portraits. Um, and they have the character of a collective memory, or rather a collectively suppressed memory. Because when we look at the shattered faces of these men, um, we're seeing what they saw in the mirrors they all doubtless eventually managed to get hold of. And we're also seeing what their comrades in arms saw, although what they saw was even more raw and bloodied and fresh from the wounding, as they dragged them to be stretched away through the mud under the pewter skies of Flanders, past the blackened stumps of the trees of the battlefield. And we're seeing what their mothers and their fathers and their other loved ones saw. And it's only in Tonks's images that we see this. Um, no one cared to speak of it. And although the poetry of the First World War expressed a great deal of disgust and outrage, these faces don't appear in it. I sort of think as well that these pictures help, help they've helped me to, to, to think about and to understand some of the other artists who are perhaps more centre stage than um, Tonks in the history of British art, the Hamlets, not the Rosencrantzes and the Guildensterns. And help, I think Tonks's images help us to understand their work better. 
So you, this is David Bomberg. Now, before the war, this is the mud bath, which I think is 1913. It's either 1913 or 1914, is it? It's very, very, it's just, just before the war breaks out. Um, and so there's Bomberg. And he's interested in futurism. And Filippo Marinetti, who's saying we should embrace war. War's great. War is the hygiene that cleanses civilization. And we should burn down our museums because we don't need to be looking at old paintings. Maybe war will do that for us. And we should embrace violence. It's the only way that we can transform society. But then Bomberg's not wedded to those ideas, but there's, he's interested, like Wyndham Lewis, who wrote the magazine Blast, in the idea that somehow, you know, Victorian England with its tea sets needs to be blown up if we're ever going to make a modern Britain that we really want to live in. And these mechanomorphs marching to the colours of the Union Jack, I don't know if they're Bomberg's image of himself and the rest of London's Jews <coughs> defiantly leaving their mud baths to become part of British society or, you know, whether there's some idea of even perhaps of incipient conflict. Um, but this idea of being jagged and embracing the modern and violence, it's, it is there in, in Blast and the Vorticists and Bomberg. It's there to a degree. And uh, when you look at what Bomberg creates after he's drafted out, having um, shot himself in the foot and narrowly escaped court-martial and execution in order to leave the trenches, he ends up in Palestine painting pictures like this. Um, and then Paul Nash. I think once you've seen Henry Tonks's pictures, see Paul, Paul Nash doesn't depict, he depicts the war and he depicts the fields of Flanders. Uh, and he calls this with some degree of irony, we are making a new world order, this picture. And you see in that depiction of a um, churned up muddy landscape with blackened tree stumps and a livid sky, you see a depiction not of the human consequences of war, but of the devastation wrought by war on the landscape. And yet, when you've seen those Tonks images, uh, when I saw the Tonks images, or when I thought about them and I looked at this, I wondered to myself whether Paul Nash isn't actually, whether this wasn't Paul Nash's way of finding in the landscape an equivalent to the bubbling, craterous flesh wounds that he'd seen in his comrades' bodies and faces. You know, is that sky a painter's metaphor for burnt flesh, like young Lieutenant Lumley's flesh? And is that sun like an outraged eye staring through the mask of a wound? And are those tree stumps amputated limbs or damaged limbs. Um, I think there's more of the human body present in Nash's work, perhaps, uh, than, than 
than has been recognised. I also, incidentally, I haven't got an image of it, but uh, I, I'm very curious to know um, if anybody can answer the question, but Francis Bacon was very interested in diseases of the mouth and collected textbooks of anatomical photographs of mouth diseases. And I would be astonished if Francis Bacon, especially when I consider the similarity between his images of a, a kind of atrociously outraged, wounded humanity um, and, and Tonks's images, I would be so surprised if he'd never seen them. I really would. <coughs> but curious, anyway. Um, and again, um, this is a painting by um, an underrated artist called Algernon Newton, who was similarly, uh, like Bomberg, traumatised by his experiences of the First World War. And he painted these strange, almost like Neuersachlichkeit, new realism, new objectivity, as it was called in Germany, these curious haunted, almost, well, they're before him, but Hopper-esque um, cinema set visions of a completely depopulated London. It's like London with a neutron bomb having gone off. Um, and and this, is, this is another way. In a sense, it's where is everybody? It's a picture of all the people who are dead by not including anybody. It's like a generation has gone. So let's look at the emptiness. Let's not pretend London is peopled as it was. It isn't. So there's a kind of anger behind these pictures that, again, I think Tonks's works make us... You know, if you think of the number of those men whose <clears throat> faces we can still look at who didn't survive... Um, I think it's very hard for us to actually... Uh, and there's something about the nature of academic discourse currently, particularly, that seems very dehumanised, so that we don't actually think about what it was like. What, what it was like. And I think these works of art help us to perhaps understand what it must have felt like. Very hard. Just imagine everybody that you know who's got a son aged 20 or less at least one in three of them, have, maybe more, have lost their children. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's unreal. Take any school, you know, and half of them are dead. Um, and I think it's also enabled... Um, it's given me a clearer sense, I think, as well, of, 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 of what happens on the international uh, art scene, if one thinks of a famous artist called Picasso. I mean, this is, this is his cubism. This is when Picasso, who is, develops cubism with Brack before Marinetti and his futurist um, frothery gets going. But nonetheless, I think Picasso is attempting to depict some sense of I don't think cubism's just about trying to see the man in the round or something like that. The cubist pictures don't look like that to me. I, 
I never believed any of that stuff, frankly. I think Cuba's pictures are about fracturing and about brokenness, and they're about new technology, and about the fact that we can fly all over the place, and they're about the fact that we're more alienated from ourselves than we've ever been. Look, we're coming to bits, that's what Cuba's pictures say. And maybe, maybe Cuba's portraits like this picture of Kahnweiler celebrate that. Maybe Picasso wanted to celebrate it. Maybe it was part of the modernist enterprise of celebrating a fractured sense of self that we don't have to be contained or constrained by a single identity. It's that strain of philosophy that leads up to Sartre and existentialism and all that. But when you have the war, maybe you think that all that isn't so great being broken. So you paint that. Because Picasso, after the First World War, returns to the figure. They call it the call to order, the return to order. But images of unblemished Grecian bodies on an Aegean forever. That's Picasso's response. Again, to the same thing that Tonks is really getting us absolutely close to. Closer, perhaps, than anyone else. So Gillies, yeah, Gillies um, wrote a book called The Principles and Art of Plastic Surgery. And he t in that book, he recounts a story told to him by nurse Catherine Black. And I don't think it's the story about anyone who we can identify. But So I've, I've just put two, two of these faces up. But it's the story of a corporal who had been very handsome to judge by a photograph of him the nurse had seen when unpacking his kit. So this is the nurse's story. We don't know who it was. Was it him? Was it him? It was not long before I heard of Molly. She wrote to him by nearly every post, letters full of plans for the day when she would be able to come and see him. He kept putting her off. I don't want her to come until you get some of these beastly bandages off, sister, he used to say. It would scare her to death to see me lying here like a mummy. On the day they were taken off, his mother visited him. She went very white, and I thought for a moment she was going to faint, but not the slightest expression of face or voice betrayed her. Mirrors were prohibited in that ward, but to my dismay I found the corporal in possession of one that evening. None of us had known that he had a shaving glass in his locker. I think he must have fought out his battle in the night. For early next morning, he asked for pen and paper and wrote a letter to Molly. You're well enough to see her now, I said. Why not let her come down? She will never come now, he said quietly. That's the end.
Right. Um, thank you very much, Andrew. I have a question of my own, but I'm going to save it maybe for later because I suspect that there's lots going to come from the audience. Um, we are recording this lecture this evening, so if you can wait until someone pushes a microphone under your nose to ask your question. And um, just a guide to top of the pops etiquette. If you use a microphone, you need to put it right near your mouth for it to work. If you hold it down here, you won't be, we won't be able to hear you on the tape. OK, thank you. <laughs> Who's got the first question? Oh. <laughs> I expected a sea of hands. Oh. Well, we'll take directorial privilege. Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks for a wonderful lecture. I mean, you read things into those pictures that uh, none of us, I think, have thought about before. My question <coughs> is about um, Tonks before and Tonks after, um, the impact that his war experience had on him. Are you able to discern a difference in style? He goes back to these interiors and so on, doesn't he? Are you able to yeah, discern I'd, any difference I'd, in style? I'd, I'd, well, there's a new biography of Tonks just being prepared at the moment. The The... the Existing, you know, it's not very easy to look at anything quickly to see. So I'd, I'm not, and there haven't been many exhibitions, so I wouldn't claim to be sufficiently expert in Tonks's professional work. And I haven't really looked to see um, if there's a if there's a marked if there's a marked change. So I'd have to plead ignorance. Thank you for an excellent lecture. Um, I'm not an artist, so I don't know if I'm phrasing the question correctly, but these are done in pastel. If they were done in watercolour, do you think they'd have had the same depth of expression, and would it have taken longer for the paintings to have been carried out in watercolour? I think <clears throat> watercolour is pretty much out of the question because it's very hard to um, change, you know, alter a watercolour. Um, there's pastels like oil painting can be, you know, can be you can work and you don't have to wait for it to dry or anything like that. So, in the if you imagine the predicament of somebody sitting for you in that situation, you don't want to be doing anything that you haven't got the luxury of waiting for a layer of watercolor to dry before you add some more detail. So I think it just I, I don't think he even attempted any watercolors before deciding that it wasn't going to work. I think he just didn't never went down that path. Um, and as I was trying to say, I think p pencil drawing wouldn't have been much good. Because um, all pencil drawing really would do... Well, I, that's not quite fair to say, because there are things you can do with charcoal, but... Uh, yeah, I, I still don't think it would give enough sense of, um, you know, a piece of skin that's very livid and almost... Uh, let's say you're doing someone whose face has been repaired. You know, wet scar tissue that's properly work, you know, got really much better and scar tissue that hasn't got much better and is still quite shiny. Things like that are just very, very difficult to achieve. And they're difficult to achieve anyway, I think. I'm not an artist either, but my understanding is that they're very difficult. You, you'd know better than me. Um, do you think it, there was something about um, Tonks being part of a multidisciplinary team that Gillies was running, that this was the one place where um, facial injury was accepted for what it was. People were actually looking at them and dealing with them in a matter-of-fact way. Do you think that had an effect on him and allowed him to draw such clear pictures? Yeah, I think I, I, th I think that's a good point. 
I, I think they became their own bubble, that place. It's like, I mean, my, I, I've been in places where, <clears throat> I, sort of sadly, I've known people who've had horrible things happen to them, and you go into a ward where everyone is paralysed from the neck down, but everyone there, that's normal. And, and I think it's not normal, but it's much more normal. So I think maybe there's a sort of normalisation that takes place. Although even, I mean, if you read Gillies's, some of Gillies's letters, um, the chap who, I can't remember his name, but the chap who I, well, we'll see. Mm, him. Yeah, he, Gillies said that, for example, said that that's a, that was a particularly horrific injury. And so he was still aware, but I think I think maybe because he was thinking about how difficult it was. This chat, he had a great deal of difficulty chewing and things like that. Um, but Gillies certainly didn't lose his ability to be shocked by a particular injury, and, and I think Tonks didn't either. So I didn't, I didn't mean in terms of it not being shocking, but in the place where, the one place where these men were looked at and looked at in detail and examined, they were sort of... You mean rather than, rather than shied away from? Yes, exactly, precisely yeah. so. Well, we see, we don't know how much they were shied away from. It's quite interesting. One of the encouraging things about the evidence is... Maybe it's because women are much more forgiving than men, I don't know, but... Um, Lots of these blokes seem to end up married, you know. Um, so, you know, I mean, th there must have been a kind of degree of acceptance for that to take place. Okay, shall I go now? Yeah, I'd like to just um, draw attention, which you have done, but I think it's, uh, you know, it's terribly important. The fact is that he was a surgeon. Um, Tonks. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is, he wasn't... If you look at the work that he had done, you know, he was not a great painter. He was not a great artist. But something came along which gave him a unique opportunity to be something which no-one else could have been, perhaps, at that moment. The only other artist that I know of that did anything like this but was in a totally different setup was Otto Dix, which you know from those um, drawings that he did, the watercolours, they were watercolour, actually, of the war-wounded. Hmm. And I think the fact is that, you know, in, a, in the context of the fact that there was an animosity that you described in a certain sense towards modernism, this opportunity gave him, uh, these terrible this terrible situation gave him the opportunity to do something which other people perhaps could not have done, which is to not only do it as an artist, but to do it as somebody who understood tissue. Hmm. And in that sense, um, it was in a, also a sense, in my estimation, a way of, uh, I don't want to be too strong on this, but in a, in a way putting up two fingers also to modernism. Um, and to the fact, as you intimated, the fact is that this is another reality and he could then bring that into the art historical sense, the, the background which he had at the Slade in terms of academic, a rather strict form. Um, and these two things came together. The work afterwards, from my understanding, didn't make a great change from the work that he did before. It was perhaps more, shall we say, um, melancholic rather yeah, than the Tissot-like work well, he, was before. Yeah, he certainly didn't um, leap off into uncharted new territory as a professional painter. Um, 
but yes, I think that's I think that's that's. A, I mean, the only other there are some other pictures that I can think of that remind me of these a little, which are Jericho's portraits of the insane, um, which are also which are very unusual pictures because no one was painting those people at that point. I think Jericho may have been confined himself, but it's not clear. The history isn't quite clear how he came to do those pictures. Um, yeah. But Goya tends to take one more in the direction of in imagination. And I, I think that these pictures, to me, they breathe a spirit of empathy. So the, the, I suppose empathy is to always, to a, a degree, a form of imagination, but they, they don't... Yeah, they don't, they don't embroider. And I suppose, yes, I mean, in, in terms of Henry Tonks' own personal set of values, he might well have looked at these and, and, and thought to himself, you know, well, Picasso couldn't do that. Because, you know, what, what use would Picasso be to a plastic surgeon? Um, yeah. Um, you mentioned that they weren't allowed to have mirrors on the ward or anything like that, but were they able to view the pictures that were made of them? Were they allowed to see themselves mediated that way? Uh, I think history doesn't relate, but but uh, I would be surprised. I would be surprised if they didn't um, see some of them, but I, I really don't know. My sense is that that picture of Charles Deeks was very much made for him to look at. Uh, just when I look at one and the other. Um, but maybe the first one was not. Uh, I mean, the thing about mirrors, <coughs> you know, as anybody knows, it's, 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 you can find something to reflect, to look in, probably. Whether it's, a, you know, I mean, a, a, a window at night with the light on inside, that's enough. Um, perhaps a naive question. How, how long did each uh, picture take to paint? Did, what was it over a series of, of several sittings, over a period of days, weeks, or, or a matter oh. of hours? And the reason I ask particularly is because, as you've identified, he, he, point, he captures a number of different um, expressions and, and, and moods in, in, in those, those, um, those soldiers. And, and I wondered if he'd spent a long time with them, if he chose to, to try to um, capture just that one facet at that one time, or, you know. I don't think, I think he would have thought taking that kind of luxury, taking that kind of liberty or, 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 or treating himself with that kind of luxury would have been a form of disrespect. That's my feeling. That's what I, I think he would have, um, created them as quickly as he could in order to minimise the ordeal of the sitter. Uh, that's my impression. And um, the, the, when you compare some of them, which, which, which you can do with the photographs, um, I, I think, again, just looking at the wounds, you, you, it's almost as if they wouldn't stand still long enough. Because um, the wounds are so sort of suppurating, and I, I, I just don't know. I mean, it's, it's possible he could have done it over two sittings. Um, special, well, certainly the ones where the faces have been more or less stitched and have healed, but the ones where the, where the wounds are actually almost running, I mean, you think it must have been done fairly quickly, I would have said. But I mean, I'm, I'm only guessing as much as anyone else in the room would be guessing. 
do you think we have these pastels only because there was no color photography? And that as a surgeon, you'd want to take a picture quickly, have the patient be done, you'd just do a color photograph instead of a pastel, but it wasn't available then. Well, there's different views, there's different views about that. Gillies, Gillies um, believed in drawing. Gillies was an artist in it as well, yeah. And um, Gillies wanted, wasn't as good as Tonks, which is why he wanted Tonks on board, and probably maybe he was a little too busy to do everything. But um, there's a strong school of thought, which um, goes back a pretty long way, that, uh, I mean, I know, I know a heart surgeon very well who, who still has all his students draw the heart inside out, backwards, back to front, every little bit, um, because he believes that if you draw, you learn. Um, and there's that sense, I think. I, I, I wonder about the extent to which Tonks, when he was drawing these images, I wonder, I wonder whether he wasn't actually talking to Gillies, saying, did you, I mean, I can't use the terms, I don't know, edema or fistula or whatever it might be, but he might be saying, do you see that bit? That's not quite healed. or. The, the, the drawings, I think, might have been uh, something for discussion as well as... And because they were drawings that are made almost as if, as if he's feeling the face. And there's a good example of that. So, I mean, uh, this heart surgeon that I know, there's a valve in the heart, don't ask me to name which one. Um, and there are these couple of flaps at the bottom of it. And, um, but they're tiny. And until 1975 or something, people thought that evolutionarily that those little flaps on that little bit of valve of heart were just left over from, like, some kind of ancient evolutionary hang-up, like from when we were fish or something, i.e. they had no function. And um, then he looked at... He, he's a big Leonardo da Vinci... Fan. So he was looking at some drawings of the heart by Leonardo da Vinci, and Leonardo da Vinci was drawing, and he drew that valve and these flaps. And Leonardo da Vinci had been studying waterfalls and cascades and, and fluid um, hydraulic engineering. And Leonardo said, oh, yeah, you see, I think that maybe um, when the reflux of the blood does the whirlpool, it probably closes those flaps, which helps the valve to work, Right. And he thought, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. So instead of replacing this valve with a plastic one, he just surgically enhanced the flaps. And two weeks later, some bloke who was never going to run up the stairs again was running up the stairs again. Because Leonardo had seen something in this hydraulic... Because he'd got his mind about water and fluid and motion. He'd seen something in the heart that no one had noticed for, like, 600 years. So the guy devised an operation. He calls it the Leonardo operation. It's on some valve he showed me. So that's, that's how drawing can aid surgery. I mean, you wouldn't get that from a photograph because you wouldn't be thinking. Like, drawing is thinking. Disegno means concept in Italian as well as drawing. Um, yes, I just wanted to... Well, there's two points, really. One, yes, I totally agree. Art and an artist and observational drawing have been cannot be replaced. The other point was, I work in pastel. Pastel is a very, very fast medium to use, and I think that's why he chose it. Mm. 
sticks, your pigment is there, you've already got your colours, no mixing, blending, little blending, you can blend with the figure, finger or with a, a stub. So it's very fast to get these wonderful feelings of form and organic matter that he captures so well. Yeah, oh, well, I'm glad you said that because that was what I thought. Um, and again, I, I can't remember who was the most famous 18th century French pastelist. I can't remember his name. Anyway, he was famously quick. Uh, my question follows on a bit towards that one and what you said earlier on. Um, were there any images that were done from the side because these are 3D um, sort of effects and especially if you see upstairs, there's some um, sketches where it shows that the, there's reconstruction sort of coming back outwards. And I'm just wondering whether some of these images are helping the surgeon actually improve <coughs> his technique and whether there's any side images that are there. There's, I, from my experience of looking through, there are more photographs of profile than there are Tonks images of profile. Tonks's images tend to be, there are one or two that are a bit from the side, but they tend to be from front, frontally on, full frontal face on. But there were lots of photographs just to show, like when a man didn't have a nose, you know, it's quite a shocking photograph because you see that there is no nose. You never quite see that in the Tonks pictures. On the three-dimensional aspect, would you say that actually, well, I would observe, having worked with the soldiers in Birmingham and other trauma things, the first time that we can complement that is 3D printing. So at Birmingham, we were lucky enough to have a 3D printer. You print off mm. the defect. Oh, I see, yeah. And we'd have eight surgeons handling the pelvis with whatever defect's going through. Oh, right, right. I am lucky enough at Adam Brooks to work with a colleague who draws to that sort of standard. So you can imagine how we all feel when his operation notice something like that, as opposed to the scrawl that, I yeah. tried my best, yeah, did do it yeah. really well. Yeah. But a very talented colleague, he draws like that. And I would argue with his drawing, with just three colours, again with a pen, but that's him, you actually get a better three-dimensional awareness than you do with a photograph that complements it. It's quite staggering. Hmm. So he's still now, so that in for all, all the children with the cleft palates, etc. Tarek will draw alongside it, and the photograph goes it. And as a surgeon, I get more information from his drawing than I do from the photograph. Well, I think so, that I, yeah. I'm not entirely surprised by that. I mean, because I think that uh, the, you know you, how the photographic image is produced, even if it's very, very directed by human intelligence. Um, it's 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 a neutral image all the way from edge to edge. It, it records things in a neutral way, whereas if a, a friend of yours who or a colleague of yours who knows what you're interested in operating on is looking at the same thing that the camera's looking at, he will really look at the bits that. So it's almost as if you're getting. I mean, it's almost like surrealist, the surrealist map Con of the world. Contour is everything. Yeah. When the contour is good, you can hide scars everywhere. Mm. And I'm lucky enough to have one. Okay, it's hidden by my, my beard at the moment, but my, my brother put me through the coffee table when I was two. I've got a nice little scar along underneath my lip. My son's got one of those. Yeah. And it's quite nice because when we have a discussion, say, and, and as you see the scar, no one sees it. It's visible, but it's actually inconspicuous. And mm. that's pretty much what our job is to try and do. Mm. 
Out of curiosity, did uh, Tonks continue to draw any of these people after they'd left the hospital or continue to draw them in portraiture for the, throughout his career or was it after they'd left the hospital or after he'd went, he never saw them again? I think the project was the project and there was nothing outside the project. So you don't think he got a personal connection with any of these people in particular? It's hard to say. I think there's a personal connection in, in, in the images. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for your talk. I think most of us find the, it unable, we're unable to say anything at all about the pictures because they're so emotive. And most of us probably have fathers and grandfathers that we never talked to about what happened to them in wartime. Certainly I did. Um, I was interested that Henry Tonks, in your portrait at the beginning, is left-handed, I think. He's holding his paintbrush in his left hand. Aha. Uh -huh. And I just wondered, because it would be very difficult to be a surgeon it was if, at that time if you were left-handed, because there would not have been very many instruments that would have been adapted for a left-hander. So it's, it's just an observation that maybe that... It is always possible that the slide was reversed. <laughs> I, I did wonder that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm afraid yes, I just don't know if he was left-handed. That's a sinister question to which I cannot give a straightforward reply. Um, anyway, thank you very much again for, for coming. Thank you for so many of you coming. <laughs>